raw food versus cooked food is one healthier for the gut? Yeah, this is a great question. And I really dig it because I find the answer to be fascinating. Every food has its own unique types of fiber. Those types of fiber feed unique families of microbes. So effectively what I'm saying is if you take the exact same food and you cook it, it's almost like getting two different plants because you are feeding different families of microbes. We want all of our microbes to be fed. But this is not just about gut health. This is also about the reality that every single food has its own strengths and weaknesses. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 31 for season four, number 226 overall. And today we are going to get a fiber-fueled gut check on the show. Gastroenterologist extraordinaire and best-selling author Dr. Will Bolsowitz will join me as we open the doctor's mailbag. This was taped on the exam room live recently and today's top question is raw food better for your gut than cooked food? Dr. B is going to weigh in on that debate in just a little bit, but the reason why I love the exam room live so much is because we get a chance to cover a little bit of everything, so much ground to cover. Like how does fasting affect gut bacteria and is wheat bad for your digestive system? Somebody else wrote in wondering what the effect of bad carbs and processed food was on the gut. Plus, we're going to be covering antibiotics and prebiotics and probiotics and so much more. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Plus, after we wrap up the doctor's mailbag and that Q&A, I will have details on a brand new study that looks at how animal foods and alcohol and sugar have been linked to inflammatory gut microbiome brand new research out of the Netherlands. I will tell you all about that in just a little bit. But first, it is time to raise our health IQs by answering your questions. It's time to open up the doctor's mailbag with Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Dr. B, you ready for question number one? Let's go. All right. The first question comes to us from Pam wants to know, what is your opinion on raw food versus cooked food? Is one healthier for the gut? Yeah, this is a great question. And I really, I really dig it because I find the answer to be fascinating. Um, we know that every food has its own unique types of fiber. Those types of fiber feed unique families of microbes. And what's interesting is that there's a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, his name is Peter Turnbaugh, and he did a study looking at raw versus cooked. So basically he took the exact same food and he saw the effects of, the, of these foods on the gut microbiome, depending on if they were raw versus cooked. And what he found that I thought was really interesting is that you had differing effects based upon whether you cooked the food or you didn't cook the food. Now, is one superior? No, I would not claim that one is categorically superior and that you should exclude the other. 
Instead, what it is, is we want, you've heard me say this before, I'll probably say it again in the next couple of minutes, diversity of plants is the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And so effectively, what I'm saying is if you take the exact same food and you cook it, it's almost like getting two different plants because you are feeding different families of microbes. We want all of our microbes to be fed. So I would not claim that raw versus cooked is superior one versus the other. Instead, what I would say is that we want both. And for the person who's suffering with digestive issues, it is easier to start with cooked food and work your way towards including the raw foods. But that, you know, a little nibble on some kale or some collards before you go to steam or cook them, that's a good idea because then you're feeding those microbes too. We want both. That always comes back to variety, whether you're talking about a variety of different kinds of foods, or in this case, a variety of ways to ingest the food itself. I think that, you know, variety just seems to be the theme when it comes to a healthy diet overall. Well, variety, is, variety is the theme and it, it goes beyond, I mean, in, in my book, Fiber Field, I, I make my argument that variety is the key to a healthy gut. And we have science, we have several studies at this point now to back that up. But this is not just about gut health. This is also about the reality that every single food, even if we call it a superfood, every single food has its own strengths and weaknesses. They'll have certain vitamins and minerals and phyto, phytonutrients, but it will be missing in others. You know, if, if I ate just kale all day long, I would not be that healthy, even though some people would argue that's the healthiest food on the planet. And so, you know, what you're missing in the kale, you can pick up and find when you add in and sprinkle in some other foods. And that's that's the beauty of eating a broad, diverse diet is that there are no longer any weaknesses because you're playing to the strengths of every food. Let's go ahead and do a little gut health 101 here. Help Beatrice out. She's wondering uh, if you could talk about the best practices for gut health overall. Best practices for gut health overall. Okay. Well, I think that, you know, we have to start with diet. I mean, that's very clear. We eat an average of three pounds of food per day, a thousand pounds of food per year. So if we start doing the math, each one of us is going to eat about 80,000 pounds of food during our lifetime. And all that food is coming into contact with your gut microbiome. And that really is the principal driver that shapes what the gut microbiome looks like. Now, the exciting thing about this is that you were not born with a microbiome that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. You can shape it. You can mold it and make it what you want it to be. Your dietary choices are what do that. And we know that the main source of fuel of positive energy for your gut is dietary fiber. I'm not talking about supplements. I'm talking about food, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, legumes. When we call them plants, they're good for our gut microbiome. And when we get outside of that category into highly refined processed foods, animal products, dairy, eggs, and uh, meat, that's when we actually are feeding our gut microbiome the food that it doesn't prefer and can create issues. But it's not just diet. You said it's gut microbiome 101. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that our lifestyle matters a lot too. Getting a good night's rest exercising, staying physically active, spending time with people you love, believe it or not, believe it or not, the people that you spend time with have an effect on your gut microbiome. Having a pet has, a, has an effect on the gut microbiome. Um, so really it's about seeing this big picture, which is that we are not just these humans living our lives, that we are humans with 39 trillion living microbes, each an individual microorganism.
living inside of us. And that integrates us with our environment and with our diet and lifestyle. And ultimately that microbiome is an expression of our diet and lifestyle. 39 trillion. That is a lot. That is a number that's incomprehensible in all honesty. That is just insane. Take all the stars in the sky and you would need a thousand galaxies full of stars, compress it all down, put it inside of you. It's there right now. It weighs more than your brain does, believe it or not, but it's invisible. And so it makes it very hard for us as humans to wrap our mind around it because we don't do very well with things that we don't see. That is crazy. All right, uh, man. All right, we're not going to count that high on the show here today. Um, let's uh, grab another question. This one comes to us from Carrie. This is an interesting one. Is wheat bad for the digestive system? Wheat is not inherently bad for the digestive system. In fact, wheat has been attacked and vilified in our food culture over the last 10 years. Some very popular, big selling books told us that we shouldn't be eating wheat. And if you take a step back and you look at wheat, the food in isolation, you walk out into a field, you pick some wheat, raise your hand if you've done this before. Yeah, none of us have, right? Because we, none of us go out into the field to get raw natural wheat. But if you were to look at that food, it's actually incredibly healthy for our gut microbiome. It has fiber, it has complex polysaccharides, it has resistant starches, all of which are prebiotic meaning that they feed the gut microbiome. When they have studied the effect of wheat on the gut microbiome, they have found that actually the gut microbiome benefits with the growth of more short chain fatty acid producing microbes when you are consuming wheat. When a person goes on a gluten-free diet, we actually see that it appears that they are causing harm to their gut microbiome because they are withdrawing the wheat, which is the number one source of whole grains in the American diet, again, with the fiber, the complex polysaccharides, the resistant starches that feed our gut microbiome. Now, that being said, Chuck, wheat is in everything. Wheat is in processed foods left and right everywhere. Wheat also is being processed with our modern farming systems that include the spray of Roundup. Roundup is sprayed onto wheat to dry it out. We need dry wheat in order to process it. You can accelerate that process by spraying it with Roundup. And I have concerns based upon the studies that I've seen about the effects of Roundup in our diet, not to mention the effects of Roundup on our environment. So the point being from my perspective, wheat in organic, minimally processed form is not a problem. In fact, it is good for our gut microbiome. Wheat in highly refined processed foods, in foods that are being sprayed with Roundup glyphosate, I have concerns about that form of wheat. And unfortunately, that's what makes up most of the wheat out there. So what I would encourage people to do is, yes, if you do not have celiac disease, include wheat in your diet, but make it high quality sources of wheat, like organic bread, like sourdough, things like that. Next question is one that touches on fasting. This is uh, another popular topic that comes up here. Uh, this person is wondering, how does regular fasting affect your gut health? Our gut microbes. Uh, so it's interesting. Before we jump into fasting, let's take a step back for a moment and ponder this. 
The first living creatures on this planet were archaea, as far as we know. They've been around for about 4 billion years. Now, to put that into context, us humans have only been around for about 3 million years, we believe. So 4 billion years of archaea, that's before we ever even had oxygen on this planet. These archaea can live inside of us. And the, the key here, from my perspective, what I'm trying to point out, is that all microbes, all humans, all living creatures, period, evolved with one characteristic in mind, which is the sun would come up and the sun would go down every single day. That was true 4 billion years ago and it's true today. It never changed. That's the only thing that's been true for all of us from an evolutionary perspective. So we developed what's called a circadian rhythm. The circadian rhythm means that we have an intrinsic clock within our biology. We have it as humans, and guess what? These microbes have it too. So these microbes, they are living creatures, and they need a break. They need rest. And they also have a circadian rhythm where they like to have a rhythm. And so the point from my perspective when it comes to fasting and its role with gut health is that our microbes like it when we have an early dinner when we don't eat late night snacks, when we don't drink alcohol late at night, when we allow them to take a break when it is dark outside, and then we can pick back up 12, 14, or 16 hours later, and we may derive benefits in terms of our metabolism and our gut health as a result of that. Next question comes to us from Jamie, wondering if you could answer this one about what effect do bad, bad carbs from processed foods, what effect does that have on gut health? Well, we call them carbs, and I, I have to say that I regret that we use terminology like this because we're talking about a macronutrient, which is a very broad category of food. I mean, within carbs, there is a ton of stuff that is incredibly healthy. Fiber is a carb. And then there's the stuff that it's the highly refined processed stuff where we're creating things that are unnatural. And so I, I think that the reality when it comes to this conversation is that rather than defining things as carbs, we should define them as ultra processed foods because that's what they are. These are ultra processed foods. You can't create this at home, can you? I mean, if you could, I would love to see it. But when you look at the ingredient list and many and most of these foods that we're referring to right now, I was a chemistry major in college. I have no clue what most of these things are that are on that ingredient list. <laughs> and, and seriously, and when you have this kind of stuff in there, clearly, this is not coming in anything that is anywhere close to natural. And this is not something that existed 100 years ago. This is something that was developed in a chemistry lab and then brought forward into our food system. And so the concern from my perspective is that those chemicals that are in there, many of them, we don't know what they do to humans, particularly when they're consumed over the long run. And so from my perspective, I, I feel that the safest position to take when it comes to ultra processed foods, and I mean, we could dig into some of the studies that show us that ultra processed foods are not healthy foods. But I think the point is this, at the end of the day, the healthiest position to be in is to be maximizing the fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes in your diet. No one's perfect. I eat processed foods too, but we really wanna to try to minimize it as much as possible. Um, that way we can really be getting the, the beneficial foods overpowering these foods that we have concerns about. 
A lot of nice comments coming in the chat room right now about your book, Fiber Fueled. And uh, one particular <laughs> group who's watching, the Nerdtritionists, I love that name. Uh, they wanted to let you know that they've even made a video about your book. So if you haven't picked up a copy of Fiber Fueled just yet, you should really give it a read. And you can find a link to purchase that right now uh, on Amazon. That is in the show description. So go ahead and check that out. I, I seriously, I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. It is literally one of the best books about nutrition i have ever read bar none thank you man i i mean coming from you that means uh, so much and, and i appreciate the nutritionists i i love that name too i think it's really cool i'm gonna have to go check out what they're talking about after this um but it is it is a great honor and it's been amazing i i i'll be honest with you chuck i feel like i get more credit than I deserve many times because I have people reaching out to me every single day from across the world, like people from New Zealand, Australia, mm. reaching out to me and telling me that their life has been changed. Yesterday, a doctor reached out to me. She's a GI doctor in training. And she, she said that she completely changed her perspective and how she's treating her patients after reading my book. And so from my perspective, it just, it really warms my heart and it makes me feel so good that the effort that I put into the book, waking up at five in the morning to do it, you know, uh, bird dogging all those references, trying to find them. At the end of the day, it really feels like it was so worth it to be able to provide something that helps people. No doubt, man. And and you are helping people on such a large scale. So uh, again, you know, thank you for putting that out. I know that you did. You, you poured your heart and your soul into that, and it definitely shows. Um, let's go ahead and continue on with the questions. This one comes to us from Leslie, writes, I have to take antibiotics prior to my dental visits. How much damage am I doing to my gut? And is there anything I can do to minimize it? Well, this is a great question. Uh, I get people messaging me almost on a daily basis asking about this. The good news is this, to, to a large degree, the amount of damage that's being done would be proportional to the extent of the antibiotics and the strength of the antibiotics. And typically the doses of antibiotics that are being taken for dental procedures are quite limited. It's usually a one day affair and that's about it. So, so first of all, I think that that's a really positive for this person. I, I believe you said her name was Leslie. I think that's great. Um, it's a good place to start. What do we want though? If we just remove that for a moment, let's talk about antibiotics and how do we handle this? What do we want to protect ourselves? Um, you know, if we have to take antibiotics, first of all, you are in the best position possible if you are already eating a plant-based diet before you ever find out that you have to take antibiotics. They did a study and they looked at this and they actually showed that in terms of the damage done to the microbiome, there was less damage and a more rapid recovery of the gut microbiome if you were already consuming a plant-based diet. So you want to be taking advantage of that before you ever discover that you need to take them. What do we do after the antibiotics? Well, the, the key from my perspective is let's support and nurture the gut microbiome and let's not be, let's not be, you know, damaging our gut at during this period of time where we are vulnerable. Let's not sabotage. And so really what that means is we want to be getting our dietary fiber. We may want to consider a fiber supplement, eating a plant-based diet, getting a good night's rest, getting some exercise. And then when I talk about the sabotage, what I really mean there is not consuming an excessive amount of alcohol or really minimizing the alcohol. Um, avoiding the animal product consumption and the highly processed foods. And so again, you know, get as many positives in there as possible, reduce the negatives. And one last thing that I think your listeners would find to be interesting, Chuck, 
if you went back five years ago in this setting, I would put you on a probiotic. Not true in 2021. There was a study published in the nature in the journal Cell in 2018 out of Israel, showing us that probiotics after antibiotics actually slow the recovery of the gut microbiome. And so there are some rare moments where I will put a patient on a probiotic for a specific reason, but the vast majority of people in 2021, if you need an antibiotic, I do not recommend probiotics afterwards. Very interesting. And a follow-up to that is one from Kit who was wondering, do prebiotics also uh, feed the bad bacteria? No, by, by definition, a prebiotic only feeds the good bacteria. And so in order to qualify as a prebiotic, you have to demonstrate that it is something that has an effect on the gut microbiome and that effect is beneficial for human health. So what this means is that if we're talking about dietary fiber, dietary fiber has an effect on the gut microbiome and that effect is beneficial for human health. It produces short chain fatty acids. Dietary fiber is a prebiotic. Polyphenols, most people don't realize most polyphenols are not absorbed or processed in the small intestine. They arrive in the colon, untouched, unchanged. We're talking about things like resveratrol here. And they are changed, they are altered by our gut microbes. We need our gut microbes to process our polyphenols to get the health benefits out of them. Polyphenols are prebiotic, you know, pomegranate, for example. Um, but if we talked about doing carnitine, all right, so carnitine is something that has been known to be processed by our gut microbes to produce TMA, which gets converted in the liver into TMAO, and TMAO has negative effects on human health. It's been connected to increased risk of coronary artery disease, stroke, chronic kidney disease, peripheral vascular disease. TMAO is not good for us. TMAO is toxic to human health. Carnitine is not a prebiotic, even though it can have an effect on the gut microbiome, that effect is negative. So if something achieves a prebiotic label, you know it is good for your health. Few people are now are wondering about acid reflux. This particular person, Miwa, is uh, saying that she gets heartburn when uh, you drink vegetable juice or even sometimes eating a salad. What, generally speaking, do you think could cause that? Well, it depends a little bit on what's going into the salad and into the vegetable juice to some degree. And when you know when it's this type of food that is triggering or you know creating the heartburn symptom. I want people to understand that the root cause, there is zero evidence that plant foods are the root cause of acid reflux. If anything, the opposite is true. Recent, in recent years, we have studies indicating that fiber improves acid reflux, which is fascinating because that has nothing to do with stomach acid. So the presumption is that fiber is affecting the gut microbiome, which reduces your risk of acid reflux. We have a study recently, Chuck, using a plant-based Mediterranean diet, again, like a predominantly plant-based diet. And using that predominantly plant-based diet, improvement of acid reflux on par with medication. So it's not these foods that are the root of the problem. Here's the issue. 
if you have acid reflux, if we were to zoom in on a microscopic level, I would show you under that electron microscope how there are changes to the lining of the esophagus that may not be visible during an endoscopy. But on a microscopic level, there are changes which make it so that you are far more sensitive to acidity. You feel it. And any sort of acidic food that's in the diet, tomatoes come to mind, pasta sauce. Is pasta sauce the root of acid reflux? No. But if you have acid reflux, you will exacerbate your acid reflux. You will feel the burn when you consume pasta sauce because of the acidity. Same is true with orange juice or something of that variety. So the point is this, you want to control your symptoms. You don't want to, I mean, I'm not telling you to hurt yourself by eating foods that make you uncomfortable. But what I am saying is we want to have an understanding that the root of the problem is more of a motility disturbance, probably related to the gut microbiome, and that plant foods are the ones that actually can reverse and improve this issue from a dietary perspective. You mentioned feel the burn, man. You you eat a hit of that spicy kimchi. You definitely feel the burn twice. Uh, so that brings us to our next question from Yazar. Are fermented foods such as sauerkraut and kimchi okay to eat? They say that they've been advised to eat as much fermented food as possible because it's good for the gut flora. Well, so this is a very interesting and evolving question. And let me start with the caveat that I'm a, I actually really believe in fermented foods. And part of my reason for planting my flag and saying that is that fermented foods are not really a part of the American diet. And so when I say that, I'm simply saying that I think they should be a part of the, of the American diet that we have lost track of these foods that are traditional foods in cultures around the world. You know, sauerkraut, that's Eastern Europe. Those are my people. Kimchi, that's Korea and, and that general part of East Asia. So the, um, the thing about these foods, when we look at them in terms of research, what we're seeing is that many of the microbes that are in those foods, because these are living foods, many of the microbes that are in those foods actually start to show up in the gut microbiome, that's a beautiful thing. We also know that through fermentation, you are transforming the fiber. So you are making fiber even more accessible to the gut microbiome. You also are releasing nutrients. For example, B vitamins can be released through fermentation. So I see advantages to fermentation, but I wanna give this caveat. I'm not, I wouldn't sit here and say, this should be the backbone of your diet, no. The backbone of your diet should be fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, nuts, and legumes. But you should have some fermented foods in your diet, and they should be consumed in moderation, small portion size, as, a, as something that you have in addition to your meal. So quick example, yesterday, let me describe my lunch for you. I'm very proud of it, to be honest with you, Chuck, <laughs> because I grew a lot of it. I grew a lot of it. That's why I'm proud of it. Hey, okay. So, yeah, this was not all purchased at the supermarket. Some of it was, but I um, I had kale and I had um, some Napa cabbage that I've grown in my garden. And I also had lentil sprouts, onion sprouts, and purple amaranth sprouts that I sprouted myself. Um, so those five things, plus I threw in some walnuts and some sweet peppers. And I'm trying to remember if there was anything else, but I... The bottom line is that I put a big old dollop of sauerkraut on top and I actually didn't really need dressing. I squeezed the lemon 
I had the sauerkraut and I didn't need dressing because the sauerkraut, get it in there. It was almost like you had the dressing from the sauerkraut because the juice and it was delicious. And I sincerely believe, cause this was a very raw salad. Oh, I had asparagus in there too. This was a very raw salad, but my gut felt fantastic. And I sincerely believe that the sauerkraut was helping me there. All right. You ready for the, for your big follow-up to fiber fueled? It's okay. a companion cookbook, the fiber fueled farmer. Work with, me here. Work with me here. All right. So now that we know that you have the green thumb, I'm just planting that seed for maybe something coming out in 2022. That's all I'm saying. That's all, all right. I'm saying. You're making me a little bit nervous. Here's why. I don't want to start rumors that Dr. B has this green thumb because I let me let me just paint the picture. Chuck, let me just paint the picture of what's happening here. Okay. I open up my, the back door to my house. I walk out onto the deck. There, connected to an electrical outlet, is is my uh, tower garden. It is my farm stand. Okay. And so I have a lettuce grow farm stand. It has 24 plants and it is doing amazingly well. I mean, I'm I'm blown away by the amount of kale that's coming out of this thing. I can't keep up with it. Okay. So, but the point being like, this is, this is not Dr. B has a green thumb. I wish I could claim that. I really wish I could. Um, but what this is, is that I do enjoy growing my own food. I know that it's grown organically. I, it is grown in soil, even though it's a hydroponic system. My kids absolutely love it. My son, who's four, walks out there and is grabbing handfuls of stuff and throwing it into his mouth, which as a dad, that makes me very happy because I know that he's setting himself up for a healthy diet for years to come. So those are the advantages, but green thumb, fiber field farmer. Oh man, I would have to rebrand re myself. That'd be a new image. Oh, well, it's just a thought anyway. Uh, but yeah. you did you did touch on something with your kid there because we have so many parents who have written in over the years asking, how can I get my kids interested in eating healthy? And one of the recurring themes that comes up is get them involved in the growing process. And then they take a real supreme interest in what it is that they're growing. And of course, they're going to want to eat it. And you're saying that that's exactly what's happening at the Bolsowitz household. First of all, that was a fantastic pronunciation of my name. Gotcha. I love that. That was great. Okay. So I, I have a few comments on this because I'm a dad. My my son is four. My daughter is six. By the way, my son who's four is the size of a seven-year-old right now. So this kid, anyone who says like, you can't be tall and strong on a plant-based diet, I have no clue what you're talking about. You <laughs> come and feed this kid because it's <laughs> I have to do extra colonoscopies to keep up with the amount of food he's eating. <laughs> so um, quick shout out for everyone who's here today to um, Alex Caspero and Whitney English, who are two registered dietitians who are publishing a much needed book in the next like three weeks. And it's, it's called Plant-Based Juniors. And basically it's an entire cookbook and process for understanding how to raise kids plant-based from birth all the way through. All right, so uh, with that in mind, a few things that um, work in our house. If they grow their food, they want to be a part of it. If they cook their food and you empower your child in the kitchen, they're super proud of themselves. Like literally they come in and we have tomato sauce and they start dropping ingredients in there. And 10 minutes later, when we're eating the food, Hey, Liam, who made this? I did daddy. And he's like super proud of himself and he's devouring, you know, this plant-based meal. Um, so getting your kids involved, Colors, kids love colors. Fun, like creativity, like shapes. Kids, like young kids, love creativity, they love shapes. 
And then the other thing that I've heard from other parents and is true in our house too, Chuck, is that in my book, Fiber Fueled, I talked about plant points and challenging people for fun, like just like a challenge. Hey, let's see who can get more plant points. You can bring this into your family and it's just good, solid fun. Like, let's see who in the house can eat the most plants for dinner tonight, right? And that type of like just gamifying the entire process. You don't want to make it an obligation. You don't want to force people to do things against their will. That's just simply never going to work. What we want to do is we want to empower people. We want to make it attractive. We want to make it fun. And then it just starts happening naturally. And then your kids don't even think twice about it because now this is not that you are basically forcing them to eat something they don't want. Now this is, oh my gosh, that's such a good time. And I love challenging my dad and seeing if I can beat him and get more plant points. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool plant points i yeah. that's a new concept man i am on board with that 100 i might it's kick fun that you can challenge your friends head. you know yeah you can challenge your spouse yeah okay uh we got time for a a few more questions here um let's do a departure from nutrition really quick and just flat out let's try to save a life here rosalinda is asking what are the signs and symptoms of colon cancer Okay, so first of all, we don't want to wait until we have the signs and symptoms. And this is the reason why that I'm a big proponent and a believer in taking a proactive approach. What that means is that when you are eligible for colon cancer screening, which for most adults in the United States is 45 right now, when you are eligible, you should get it done as soon as possible. If you have a family history, particularly a first degree family member who's had colorectal cancer, or an advanced colon polyp. You can start even earlier than that. So that is something to discuss with your doctor. If you are in your 30s or you are before the age where you get a colon cancer, uh, colon cancer screening and you see blood in your stool, that's an opportunity. Get checked. Make sure there's nothing going on there. The symptoms of colorectal cancer, things that we would look for, we look for bleeding, unexplained anemia, particularly when you are low on your iron, we would want to know why is that occurring? And that's an automatic indication for colonoscopy. Abdominal pain that we can't explain. Change in bowel habits. Uh, not necessarily a pencil thin stool, but any sort of change in bowel habits. Unexplained weight loss. Um, these are some of the things that we're looking for in people to say like, could this be colon cancer? But here's the thing, like I never want it to be that thought in the clinic, I never wanted to be, could this be colon cancer? I prefer to be like, okay, here is the symptom. Let's be proactive about this. Let's go in and make sure that there's nothing going on. And once we have that information, we can have confidence knowing that we are safe. And I myself, Chuck, am actually going to be having my colonoscopy in the next couple of months here. And I'm 40 years old. And the reason why is due to family history. And I want, it's because I want to make sure that I'm safe. I got these two kids, they're four and six. I want to see them for another 50 years. Is family history the reason why you became a gastroenterologist? No, that wasn't my motivation. My motivation for becoming a gastroenterologist is a little bit complicated. I want to spend too much time on it. I actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, what I ended up discovering is that I really love using my mind to peel apart the complex layers of figuring out prop like medical problems for patients and then creating solutions. But there was a second part to me that wanted to use my hands at least a little bit. 
And there's only so many fields that combine those things where you're really using your mind. That's what an internist does. An internist uses their mind, a surgeon uses their hands. As a gastroenterologist, I am an internist, but by becoming a gastroenterologist, I also get to spend about half my time using my hands and performing colonoscopy and upper endoscopy. So it's, a, it's the best of both worlds for me. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, switch gears here. And uh, you, we talk about, you, you You are famous on the show for talking about fully emptying when you go to the bathroom. And uh, Matt here is brave enough to ask this question, wants to know what should we do if we are constantly going to the bathroom, but not completely emptying? Okay, so <laughs> I didn't realize I was famous on this show. Oh, that yeah. Think that there's been some conversations about this. And that's okay because I, I love talking about bowel movements. This is literally what I do for a living. I do it all day long. And my goal is to take my patients and get them into a rhythm. Rhythm is key. And the problem is that if you are going multiple times per day, but you don't feel like you are completely emptying, if you go once and then 45 minutes later, you have to go again, these are all signs of, of issues with defecation, specifically at the pelvic floor. All right. So now, look, I talk about this all day. So I have to preface by saying I'm about to zoom in on what happens during a bowel movement. All right. But before I go there, consider this. Think about a swallow. We take for granted a swallow. We expect that during the entirety of our life, potentially up to 100 years, every single time we ask our body to trigger a swallow, it's going to work perfectly. But a swallow is a symphony of muscles. One individual muscle may be contracting and relaxing in a specific pattern based on what's happening with the other muscles. That's what's happening when we poop too. This is not just simply that things open up and you know it's like the parting of the Red Sea here. There is a symphony of muscles that are squeezing and relaxing down at the bottom in order to make healthy bowel movements possible. Now. I'm going to do something weird and you probably are going to call me on this and refer back to this into the, in the future, Chuck, I'm going to use my hands and let's pretend that this is the anal canal. So that's your bottom right there. And this is the rectum. Okay. And I want to first show you the way that it works on a normal, healthy bowel movement in the rectum in a normal, healthy bowel movement, there will be a pinch and that pinch will start to propagate forward. All right. And as that's happening, now this pinch is like, the poop is right here. So it's pushing the poop down. This pinch is pooping, pushing the poop down. Blah, blah, blah. And then as that happens, the pelvic floor and all the muscles that are down in the bowl of the pelvis, they relax. Out goes the poop. That's a normal healthy bowel movement. Now, what happens in people that have pelvic floor dysinergia, meaning that their muscles in their pelvic floor are, dis are dissynchronized? Here's what happens. You get the pinch, you get the push, but unfortunately, these pelvic floor muscles are not relaxing. So you push, 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 push. You're bearing down, and then you get it like a trap door to uh, uh, open up real quick, and a nugget falls out. Seriously, because you forced it, because you forced it, because you built up such pressure in your rectum that you were able to overpower those pelvic floor muscles. But the pelvic floor muscles, when you are trying to have a good bowel movement, are not meant to be obstructing. They're not meant to be standing in the way. They're meant to be relaxing and getting out of the way. 
And this is what we call pelvic dyssynergia. It's, it's a very common cause of constipation. And actually the solution is not to try to overpower it with medication. The solution is to retrain the muscles. So Chuck, if I hurt my shoulder, look, I could take ibuprofen for pain, right? But ibuprofen is not going to restore the ability of me to do this. The way that I do that is by gradually working into it, probably with a physical therapist to restore function and rebuild strength so that I can put my arm back up to the sky again. And in the same way, if our pelvic floor muscles are not functioning properly, then we need to work with a physical therapist who specializes in the pelvic floor to retrain these muscles. Most of their clients are women. I say this because these pelvic floor specialists, they also deal with women's health issues, with urinary incontinence, um, with burning with urine, with, uh, with pain with sex, and also with incontinence of bowel. And that is why you need to watch the show on YouTube and Facebook and join us live because that was perhaps the single greatest physical demonstration ever on this channel. That was fantastic. And you're right. I'm stopping that. Like, I'm going to isolate that and I'm just going to put that clip. I'm going to pin that to the top of my Twitter and my IG. That's what's going <laughs> to happen there. That was outstanding, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. I, I would, I would bow, but I don't know that I can really do that here. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and grab uh, one more. It's an often asked question, uh, completely on a different subject, but going back to fermentation, we have somebody wondering, uh, kombucha, because that is fermented. What is your opinion on that in terms of overall gut health? My pendulum has swung a little bit on kombucha, I have to be honest with you. Um, if you check out my book, Fiber Fueled, you will definitely, this is one of the things is you write a book, I wrote that book you know, in 2018 into 2019, um, you write a book and then sometimes you're like, oh, you know what? I feel a little bit different about that in 2021 than I used to. So I'm not anti-kombucha, but I think at the end of the day, as you know, Chuck, nutrition is like really basic nutrition that I wish everyone would understand is that it's just quite simply about substitutions. What are you replacing with what? So if you take soda, and you replace it with kombucha, I would make the argument that you have upgraded your nutrition and I give you a thumbs up. But if you take kombucha and you replace it with water, which by the way, is completely free, I would once again argue that you have upgraded your nutrition. There is sugar in kombucha. We don't have great studies to make it completely clear that kombucha is good for our health. Most of the commercial brands that are available are very high in sugar because they want you to become addicted to their product and come back and buy it again. Um, so from my perspective, if you enjoy kombucha as a substitute for soda, you are drinking it, consuming it in moderation. And one thing that I would add is kombucha is very acidic. So I always, when I drink it, which I do, when I drink it, I always dilute it. So I will make it at least 50%, if not 60 or 65% water. Kombucha becomes the minority and um, it still tastes great. And so that's, that's the approach that I would take with kombucha. If you head over to the plantfedgut.com, you can take Dr. B's free plant-fed gut five-day challenge. Just five days. Go ahead and take that challenge. I'm telling you, it's amazing what can happen in five days, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it is definitely amazing what you can do in five days. Literally. 
Chuck, in 24 hours, you've got microbiome is already starting to change. I mean, it's incredible the power that we have. It's so cool, man. I I love nutrition science and I love nerding out with you here on this program. Like your monthly appearances here on the exam room live absolutely live for them, man. You, you are just a delight. And so I encourage you uh, to go ahead and give Dr. B a follow on Instagram. That's at the gut health MD or check out his website, theplantfedgut.com. And for goodness gracious sakes, if you have not already done so, go ahead and pick up a copy of Fiber Fueled. Again, you can find a link to do so in the show description, or if you're listening to the pod, it's in the episode notes. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, you are a joy to work with my friend. Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you, Chuck. It's always fun to work with you too, man. I love you. Dr. Bolsowitz is my guy. And he is kind enough to join us every month on the exam room live the second Wednesday of every month to be precise, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel for the exam room live. Join us then and Dr. B will be there to give you a gut check. It's a great opportunity to ask him a question live. Now on the program today, we talked about colon cancer a little bit and the importance then of having good gut health overall. And so my question to you is this, how would you like to help save a life? Because there are so many people who don't yet know about this potentially life-saving information that we share here on the exam room, but you can help change that. You can help change somebody's fortunes and all you need to do is just subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your favorite shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating helps this podcast get promoted just a little bit more. And that makes it easier for those who need this information to find it. So go ahead and subscribe, leave that five-star rating, and you can help us save a life today. And finally, at the top of the show, I mentioned a new study examining animal foods and alcohol and sugar and the effect that they have on inflammation in the gut. So for this study, researchers looked at the diets of more than 1,400 patients and these patients had either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or IBS, or some even had a healthy gut. And now the researchers say that the results of the study are pretty clear. They say that processed foods and foods that are derived from animals were consistently associated with bacteria that triggers a pro-inflammatory response. But on the other end of the spectrum, plant foods were more closely aligned with what they call friendly bacteria. And that particular bacteria actually has an anti-inflammatory response in the gut. Their research shows that eating nuts and vegetables and legumes like lentils and peas and chickpeas, as well as certain breads and cereals all helped to protect against inflammation. 
But again, those patients who eat an abundance of fast food and french fries and mayonnaise and soda tend to have clusters of bad bacteria that will inflame the gut and present health challenges. And based on their findings, researchers also recommend avoiding alcohol. Now this study actually fittingly, very fittingly, was published in the journal Gut. And you can find a link to it in the episode notes. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to the incomparable Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here. And on behalf of everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>